Welcome to the show. This is a uh, very different, uh, special Here We Are podcast. I've decided to uh, release the recording, for those of you on YouTube, uh, a uh, the whole um, kind of video as well from the Crowdcast event, the live Here We Are Crowdcast event. Um, and I don't, I don't know exactly how well it will uh translate i imagine it will translate well part of the magic of these events is getting to comment along and joke with others and ask questions and that sort of thing and so you know we're also kind of interacting with the audience live in real time so how well does that where you know maybe in a in a (laughs) in a in a live event where you can hear questions and hear the audience a little more maybe for you audio listeners it might uh translate a a little better but i'm not sure i i think it will be enjoyable for you i say all this because i'm i'm requesting your feedback i'm you know figuring out what possible opportunities there are out there that exist not just as i've said before i'm not really interested in doing like quarantine compromised type shows i'm interested in uh uh i mean i'm happy to make compromises in the meantime and and do what we need to do to keep doing the podcast but i'm really interested in doing things that are added value uh kind of investments in the future of the show my career my shows things that after COVID, after there's a vaccine you know this and that uh uh, really effective treatments herd immunities whatever happens better management um uh, you know what the the many possibilities this isn't one way or another things won't be like this uh forever and so i'm looking to not just do things to get me by through this time period but to do things that will be a part of my career a part of this podcast long afterwards so at the end of the show especially i'm going to kind of dig into some of the thoughts that I have about some of the pros and cons of these crowdcast events, not just from a um, quality perspective, uh, like, for example, um, it's challenging to adapt to, I've never, I haven't been on Twitch and I haven't done much live streaming stuff, so adapting to really trying to be involved in the conversation with my guests and at the same time be attentive and like reading things from the audience as they're scrolling and knowing which things to disregard and which things are of interest and and when something has you know someone says something interesting but we're in the middle of something and then by the time we're done with that conversation the that moment has kind of passed and and figuring out when the appropriate time is to ask questions and and so definitely um i felt there was 
uh, for me, it just it, a few moments uh, uh, as a host that were just a hair awkward, uh, just attention span wise or timing wise or feeling like I was interrupting or maybe talking to. I always get so in my head about all of these things and I don't want to plant too many seeds because I think it went really, really well. But I, uh, I do just want you to know that most comics and artists and especially me right now love getting things like constructive criticism or even not even criticism like suggestions ideas um you know, you know there's a lot of i think that often um people notice this thing and they don't want to like hurt someone's feelings or something by saying like the audio was a little off or the pacing was off or something like that. But I think that there's, there's plenty of uh, constructive ways to go about doing that. And I encourage you to, and I just want to say, I, and I apologize again for the long intro, but a heartfelt uh, appreciation of science before we get into this. I really appreciate the uh, the Wisconsin Science Fest for having me. If you go to the Wisconsin, if you go to, sorry, wisconsinsciencefest.org, you can see all the events that took place. I, I imagine they'll have other things um, that were recorded that are available, and, uh, and I am... I worked with them last year. I had reached out to them last year. They're super supportive. So I reached out again and they were even able to secure a budget. So I was able to offer this for free and, and so cool that they're so interested in public communication and there's, and so check them out, you know, give them your email. So, you know, when they're coming around next year again too. And, uh, and there might be things online if you're not in the area, but Whatever state you're in, if you're a listener in the U.S., uh, there's there's usually a, a science fest in every state. Um, I, it might be different because of, of COVID in your area, but I encourage you to participate. There's so much stuff, like especially you know if you're a parent. There's things for adults. There's just such a variety of things. I I just. Um, yeah, I wish people um, uh, thought to get out there and look into. I know from touring and um, doing stand-up science and finding organizations doing science communication that there's you know science museums everywhere. There's all sorts of different science communication groups and meetup groups for a, a curious adults like yourself. And I just really. Um, believe i know everyone like gets excited about whatever thing that they're into but i just i think the world would be such a better place if we had increased science literacy uh from every angle from you know being uh, uh having better education for children adult lifelong learning increasing just curiosity in life caring about uh, our world, understanding ourselves more. Even if you, I say this all the time because it's true, like even from the most um, uh, superficial, selfish, egocentric point of view of just like wanting to sound really smart and interesting in a conversation, 
to do that, to, to go through the work, um, to actually <laughs> sound uh, intelligent and have, have uh, cool things to say and to be able to uh, disseminate um, aspects of the media like we're going to be talking about in this, in this podcast, even if you're doing it from a purely selfish, superficial uh, perspective, I don't care, like whatever it takes uh, to to get there. I really believe, you know, it, it's like I've 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 kind of been anti uh, like jocks and stuff my whole life, and I wish I wouldn't have. I wish I would have been more into exercise and stuff lately. Because even if you're, uh, it, even it even if um, it's vanity or whatever that maybe leads a person to get off the couch and and stop. Uh, uh, binge watching as much and and maybe uh, take better care of their health or something whatever whatever it is that's going to have these downstream effects of of uh, better mental health and uh, less of a burden on our healthcare system and, and that sort of thing and that's just a metaphor for how I feel of uh, just increasing science literacy is whatever it takes you know if 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 a if appealing to people's wallets and and saying hey learn some stuff and and you'll make more money or or uh check out this crowdcast program today and you'll not hate yourself for rage scrolling on social media because maybe you'll become more mindful and make a small incremental improvement in your life in that regard and be a happier person. Who knows? I don't even know the possible outcomes that will happen other than I bet you'll be better off. I there's very few people if anyone's done it it's it's me that's gone like overboard with science and risked their livelihood or something but but you don't hear too many people you don't hear uh like a a, uh lifetime story what were those like old e true hollywood stories or or whatever of like hitting rock bottom or or the story of like the the uh, uh, homeless guy on the street or someone down and out or or in prison or whatever it's like you know i had a really good life and and i just started reading science books and it just uh, took me over and i couldn't stop and <laughs> it ruined my life. Uh, I, I became obsessed. Uh, I, I'm the closest thing to that. Maybe I would be better off if I would have just continued peddling uh, drinking and masturbation <laughs> jokes or whatever with my life. Who knows? But it's tough to imagine a scenario where I would be um, uh, more happy and fulfilled in my life with less uh, of the kind of uh, curiosity for science and understanding and the and the opportunities that I've had to learn what I have. So I encourage everyone to, you know, I'm thankful to Wisconsin Science Festival, but just whatever in your local area, I'm not plugging anyone in particular. 
I just love science. I want you guys to love it too. Um, if you want to support my show, there's, there's, uh, go to the bottom of my YouTube or on the Here We Are podcast, uh, great gifts for the season, Lost Sailor Design that does my leather work. If you're on YouTube, here's a, a leather Here We Are wallet. There's keychains from my psychedelic stuff with like mushrooms and uh, LSD molecule and all these different things, but also Here We Are keychains, belts, stuff like that. But the deal that I have is not just for Here We Are stuff, it's for anything. So I don't even care if you get like a Here We Are belt or whatever, but you can get like any journal on his site, any any purse, any anything is uh is 20 percent off um with uh the code here we are 20 at lost sailor design you can take a look at the here we are specific stuff if you want but anything and i get a, a cut of that too for promoting what he does it's been someone i've been working with for years if you've been to one of my live especially psychedelic shows i usually have uh cool leather art merch that i'm i'm selling so that's a way that you can support me and get a good gift for the holidays uh and and a long-term partnership that i've had for years and will have for many more years to come uh holiday season so i might as well give them a plug because this these offers may uh, may change same with libro uh, dot fm um, which is the indie book uh company that uh it's similar to you know things like audible or whatever except they split their profits 50 50 with the local independent bookstore of your choice you go on their site they're partnered with thousands of indie bookstores and you uh you pick the one that you like from your area from your hometown from where you know your your kids are or your parents are whatever and uh and it helps support them even when you're getting audiobooks they're getting half of the profits from it and so offer code here we are uh to get a special offer with them and support this show so with that i'll i'll be giving a little spiel after the show all about um the possibility of doing more of these crowdcast shows in the future this is the one that i've this is the first one that i've put as uh, an actual podcast and i'm feeling it out there's uh a lot of really exciting possibilities and i'm leaning toward definitely wanting to do more events like this and some of it's a matter of how exactly do I pull it off budget-wise and stuff that also keep improving the quality? So keep that in mind. Would would love any suggestions or uh, or notes. And uh, yeah, you guys are awesome. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. All right, guys. My name is Shane Moss. I am the host of the Here We Are podcast. 
And each week on the Here We Are podcast, for the last six years, I have been interviewing different scientists about their research and why we behave the way that we do. I was a traditional stand-up comedian. That's how I met comedian Ken Reed here, who is the host of the TV Guidance Counselor podcast, which we'll talk about in a second. It's a fantastic podcast all about uh, TV from... uh, what, 80s and 90s or mostly yeah, 90s? Sort of, sort of pre-millennium TV is what I generally call it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's <clears throat> awesome. He knows everything about TV um, and, from that time period. And uh, more, he knows more than almost any human uh, about that time period. And then, uh, so anyhow, I was a traditional stand-up. Half, I caught some breaks, got to do the fun childhood dream late night stuff, and then wanted to do more meaningful things. I have things to say, gosh darn it. And I was always reading science books as uh, as just to my in my pastime. And I started trying to combine the two ideas and started the science podcast. I started doing science-themed shows. I did a special about mating behavior, an album about... Uh, the evolution of, of uh, negative emotions and pain. I, I've, I've toured with a show about psychedelics and, and consciousness and stuff. And, and I've been touring with a show called Stand Up Science. That's half comedy and half science. Ken has done um, several of those shows. If, you're, if you've been in the New England area and caught one of those, uh, Heather's done one as well, as well as been on the podcast. And this is like a fun kind of informal, conversational chat all about modern media use and that's what we're going to be getting into today so ken reed uh hilarious hilarious stand-up comedian why don't you tell people about yourself and in particular the podcast because it's especially relevant to uh uh some of the conversation we're going to be having today yeah, I'm hoping that I don't get charged a copay for this tonight because it sounds like some of my childhood media trauma will be discussed. <laughs> um, but uh, I, uh, I, in the before times, it was a stand-up comedian, uh, much like Shane. And for the past seven years, I've been doing this show called TV Guidance Counselor. I own uh, pretty much every issue of TV Guide Magazine, as one does. And the concept of the show is someone picks an old issue of TV Guide from my collection. They go through and write down what they want to watch that week in history, and then we talk about it and go through the week. So it's been a lot of fun. I've had many people on who I have no business speaking to, and uh, it's uh, it's my favorite thing that I've done. Awesome. Um, and Ken is super fun. Not to uh, put too much pressure on Jeez. Anything, but Ken's... Uh, Having comics on my stand-up science show is one of the most nerve-wracking things because not everyone is well fitted to interacting with scientists and stuff like that. And or people every time, or people, <laughs> especially in the comedy community. And Ken's been really awesome. Heather has been uh, went, so. I actually here's what happened. I thought of this idea uh, of I, I was in the Wisconsin Science Fest doing a live show last year. And when I thought, oh, they're going to be doing remote things these uh, now, I reached out to them. I'm like, it would be fun to have a show all about remote like education and using screen time more. And the first person I thought of happened to be a professor in Madison, one of my favorite all-time guests. Uh, great, ep- I think it's episode 200 of the Here We Are podcast. Uh, 
two, three years ago, something like that. Heather Kikorian. Heather, why don't you tell people a little bit about what you do? Sure. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Um, so I'm a developmental psychologist by training. Now I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin here in Madison. Um, and I study um, cognitive development in infants and young kids, especially in the digital world. So um, can babies learn from baby Einstein was one of the first questions I was interested in in grad school. Um, so that's that's kind of the world that I work in, kids and families in the digital world. All right. Uh, and Catalina Roma was recommended by Heather, and I've been digging into her work a little bit, which is super interesting. Uh, and this is her first time on the Here We Are podcast. Catalina, tell people about your work. Hi, everybody. I am a faculty member in communication science. I consider myself a media psychologist, so I study how people interact with one another through new communication technologies like no, much like what we're doing right now. Um, my research is about two areas in particular. One is uh, uh, relationships and media use. So I study romantic relationships and family relationships and friendships. And uh, the other is about well-being. So how the media use that we engage in affects and is affected by our well-being. So things like depression, anxiety, but also self-esteem and self-affirmation and all the positive stuff. Wonderful. So how I have this in my head is we'll probably kind of start with the childhood development stuff just because chronologically that seems to make sense. We're children before we're adults and then get into the adult stuff um, uh, later on, talk about some of the online. But but obviously I want everyone interacting with one another and I know you guys are both familiar with each other's work and when we'll have plenty to say about whatever subject so um uh, first off one of the things that I want to point out I did I planned this show before the the documentary the social dilemma um came out on Netflix and then took the world by storm it was this terrific um documentary and been very popular I liked it a lot I did think it was biased. I think it was like like every documentary likes to be like, look at this aspect of the apocalypse that's happening. And I, I thought it was maybe a little overboard. Um, to me, some of my takeaways, which if you're unfamiliar with the documentary, it's a lot of the people that were, uh, I mean, I guess kind of positioning themselves as whistleblowers, people that were in on the ground floor. Ken, have you seen it? Uh, um, I have not. I've been scared to see it because I, I need those dopamine hits and I don't want to get, you know, turned off. Yeah. Of that. Yeah. Has anyone else, uh, Heather and Catalina, have you seen it all? Yeah. yeah. So, yes. so, so let me know if you agree with kind of my assessment of it, which like my takeaway was by the end of it, I was kind of like, yes, that's fantastic that these like people that you know, invented the like button and then didn't realize like, oh my gosh, we've created this monster that we don't know how to control. Really interesting, important take. And at the same time, part of me was like, isn't this just marketing? Isn't this like not that different than, uh, you know, watching Mad Men or something and, and having, uh, you know, what people have been doing in marketing for a very long time. Um, and and in that same way, so I wanted to have a little more balanced conversation because as we talk about things like when should kids have tablets, uh, I think to a lot of uh, people around our age, it seems like 
you don't you don't just give a kid a tablet they'll get lost in it and they'll never leave the screen and they'll get sucked in and so how much of this is um is appropriate to uh, uh, uh that that we how how scared should we be of this or how much is just like every time there's some new technology there's going to be people uh, scared you know if i if i talk to my grandparents and tell them that there's going to be self-driving cars. They're like, oh my gosh, I would never get in one of those things, even though they but might be. they're Amish, though, Shane. <laughs> they, it's true. They are Amish. Um, <laughs> just like <laughs> mine. And and there's the famous, was it Socrates that was like worried books were going to. Oh, he's uh, the one who said, I drank what? <laughs> It's a joke from Real Genius. <laughs> Socrates said that books were going to, I think he said that we wouldn't use our memory anymore. We'd like outsource it to our books. Our brains would atrophy and turn to mush or whatever he said. So uh, Heather, one, how was Socrates so accurate over 2,000 years ago? <laughs> and <laughs> how, how, how did he, called it, books ruined us. Um <laughs> And and what what's some of your take on uh, on public perception of children using media use, and what what has some of your research revealed? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a great question. Yeah, so Plato and Socrates talked about this, and I, as I understand it, Plato wrote down Socrates's words because Socrates refused to write. Um, so we don't actually know if it was Plato or Socrates who who said it. Um, but yeah, there was a, this sort of belief that um, by writing things down, we would no longer remember things. Um, and I, I think that there's a, the exact line, I'll, I'm going to bungle a little bit, but it was something like, um, if, if we write everything down, then we'll have seen a lot, but know nothing that essentially we'll be able to read it all, but we won't actually know in the, in the true sense of knowing. I wish um, it worked where I could just like write down every embarrassing moment in my life and be like, your and, brain. and <laughs> done. Well, that's, and that's, I think was, um, I, I'm not a philosopher by, by any means, but I think the intention there was that um, the written word is good for archiving, but if you really want to understand and communicate, you need face-to-face -face connection. I think that was the spirit is that, writing has its place in terms of archiving, but not in terms of knowledge. Um, and this this has come up again and again across the centuries, right? So um, novels were scandalous, especially for young girls to read novels back in the day, 100, 150 years ago. And um, yeah. Then TV what? and then video games. <laughs> I mean, I think for most of us, it's kind of silly to think we would discourage teenagers from reading a book right now. We would love for teenagers to read books now in sort of popular culture. But um, yeah, and I, I think I do think social media is different in some some interesting ways. The technology is sort of has leveled up in a way that nothing else has before. But the, the general concerns and hopes, I think it goes both ways, right? The hopes we have for technology to bring people together to solve the big problems of the world. So I think we have both sides of the coin. Have, um, oh, the research, of course, says it depends. <laughs> so I'll leave that there. And I'm sure we'll spend most of our time talking about the it depends part. So I have yeah, three Ken. questions now, but uh, <laughs> in order. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, so one of them being that you know, as someone who grew up essentially raised by television, uh, it, it, my parents didn't know how to parent, uh, and unless they were trying to raise me to 
just own a bar or or be a bookie <laughs> but um it, it's a passive medium in that i Ken I, had a sad upbringing that he makes wonderful jokes about. <laughs> it's true <laughs> um but uh you know as a kid who grew up with no money and um sort of on the outskirts of education, the fact that stuff was written down or I could read things was socially, uh, socioeconomically sort of a great um, equalizer in a lot of ways. And I often wonder if the people who are like, when we write things down, it's wrong. Are people who are a little bit like, well, then I don't have any status anymore. Cause I know the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> or if it was truly an issue. Um, so it's one thing I'm curious to hear your thoughts on and the, the difference between that sort of passive um, consumption of things like screens, like when, when we grew up, I think we're all roughly of similar age versus the, although it probably feels passive, the sort of more active interactive stuff that people do now. Ken's a big video gamer now no, too as well. Not, well, not really. They, well, you're into video games. A little bit. Okay. <laughs> uh, so so uh, have at it, Heather. Wait, well, I know. I know that Catalina has a lot of thoughts on this too. I'll just say I've seen at least one person, and I think a couple of people say in the sidebar that documentaries have taught them things that they wouldn't have the patience to get from a book or maybe didn't have access to. And that's sort of my perspective that it's all about the content. Um, so if if I'm watching. Um, the Cosmo series um, uh, and learning all about the science of the stars and beyond and that kind of thing. And somebody else is reading 50 shades of gray or something. I, I think we can talk about the content being an important moderator and, yeah. um, and we can learn a lot from all kinds of things. And I would say the research very clearly shows that TV viewing is, even though it's physically passive maybe and looks passive from the outside, that our minds are incredibly active when we watch TV um, really? and kids are too. Mm. Oh, yeah. because I, I mean, I've had I've had some researchers studying the difference of like the r rating rating like their feeling of fulfillment afterwards in active versus passive. Yeah, so like watching a movie as opposed to going on a hike mm -hmm. and typically finding that um, that someone that goes for a hike feels better about it afterwards. You think that's just like how they feel and how their brain actually is are different shade. Yeah, that's true. There's that. Yeah. I, I guess I mean in terms of being cognitively active. So like thinking I, our brains oh, are see. very active. The same way if we're reading a book or listening to a podcast when we we're watch thinking TV about where it's gonna go and everything else. Yeah, and... trying to make sense of it, keeping track of who's who and what time and place we're in. Yeah, it's a very cognitively engaged process. I have a documentary, Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics. I love documentaries. And I was only I was only saying I, I loved the documentaries that that were were mentioned, the social dilemma and everything. I was only saying that like uh, I I didn't think that the pros of technology were uh, were given much credit within that document. That that's what, you know, everyone's trying to say their narrative or whatever and within that sort of they were like they were like well it's nice because i i guess one nice thing about social media is you could or in the internet is you can like call 
and and get a car at your house and it will take you a place and it'll be there in 30 seconds and that was the guy that invented uber yeah <laughs> that was like one the, of the nice the, things is me the, 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 one of the nice things but to your point too like i think it's shane on the uh not shane moss but shane drin drinnel in there mentions yeah. the glass nipple but like harlan ellison wrote those the book the glass teat they did two versions of in the 70s and it was very much like to, you know books are going to ruin us television's going to ruin us the internet's going to ruin us so i think part of it is you know nothing has ruined us yet unfortunately uh, i i wouldn't have for better or worse i mean i think that my my comedy and having scientists and give and doing public science communication i was like a guy that made a bunch of drinking jokes and and i still would was. be probably if it weren't for like David Attenborough documentaries and TED Talks. Back when TED Talks were about science and not just like uh, fancy sounding pep talks. <laughs> like, I, I, like what, what if we take these scientists and make them do verbose platitudes instead of... <laughs> it's anything? basically a timeshare pitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, Catalina, you have uh, some thoughts on this? I do, I do. Um, so I think you're totally right, Shane. What we're seeing here with the internet is very similar to what we've seen historically with all of the media. And we call these moral panics. Whenever we have a new medium entering society, there's two categories of people. The majority of people get freaked out and they're just really worried about it, destroying society and causing all of the bad things. And then you have the nerds who get really excited about it and view all of the positives. And so we've seen this with the radio, with television, with the internet. You know, I study online dating, so when it first emerged um, kind of in the 80s and 90s, people thought about it as a crutch for the desperate. And now it's become the most popular way of meeting somebody. Or people, do you, do you remember where people were worried about uh, Craigslist killers, like going on a date and getting murdered? That was a big thing. And so, you know, with time, we're getting a more sophisticated view of what's happening here and understanding that people still have agency. We still get to control what's happening. And any results of the technology that we're going to see are going to be a lot more nuanced than the initial fears that we have. I was I was negatively impacted by a Craigslist killer for a, a brief period of days. Ken, do you remember that Craigslist killer? Yeah, he looked just and like you. He looked just <laughs> like me. He really did. And, yeah, and he was from the same area that Shane was living. He was, exact yeah. same area. The hotel yeah. was like three blocks away. I remember My that. girlfriends getting texts. There were some of us who were like, I think I know Shane pretty well, but I'm not positive. <laughs> we don't. I mean, you never know if you if a friend of yours is a killer or whatever. Anyway, like, but, it, 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 there's that's never been a report from a friend. Like, I always thought he might be a murderer. I knew from I, the beginning. I, First time I met him, I'm like, this guy's a murderer, but he's you know he he he, he makes good beer, you know. So I'll hang out with him. <laughs> that was the strangest three days when I looked exactly like the Craigslist kid. <laughs> in, in the area. But, but anyway they caught the guy thank god um uh, the uh so so uh, how how much of this is I how different is like this, this from things in the past like is it just dressed differently yeah. yeah i'm interested in that and then i'm interested in uh, so i was going to ask 
how much of this is valid? How much of this should be? But that's such a broad question. I, mm. I think I think probably won't it be that our understanding of these things with time will kind of hopefully be zeroing in on mm. the worst aspects and hopefully be able to keep some of the positive things and leave behind the bad things. I mean, it seems like it's constantly going, now there's Discord and now there's Twitch and now there's TikTok and, and there's, all the, there's all these tweaks um, happening uh, all of the time. So so what, what sorts of things should we be worried about like right now, 2020, social media wise? <laughs> I was gonna say, how long do we have? <laughs> Uh, I, I sh let's say 2019. Let's go pre-COVID because this is this is a very different. I mean, uh, now people are having to do things remotely that otherwise wouldn't. Um, but let's say there's you know vaccine, great treatments. We don't need to worry about COVID anymore. Whatever rates drop, we go back to whatever normal use is, and we don't have like forced remote this Can and that. I can I ask a sort yeah. of an ad or that question slightly differently? Yeah. When when we don't have to use things like this anymore, do you think we won't? Because I think it's not going to go back to the way it was before. I think people being forced into using this, this is the way things are done now. I don't know what you guys think. Well, I always say that uh, for all of the concerns and the fears people have about technology, we're never going back to a world of less technology. There's going to be more of it. Uh, but to your initial questions, you know, just like Heather mentioned earlier, all of these effects depend. They depend on the person. They depend on what it is that they're doing online. They depend on the technology. They tend to be quite nuanced and quite sophisticated. So whenever I get the question of is social media good or bad for you, it's really an unanswerable question. Depends on what you do online, who's doing it, and with whom, and in what context, and for how long, and all of those questions. So I can tell you, you know, some things that uh, people are concerned about that maybe they shouldn't be concerned about. Um, I study deception, and this is a big, a huge area of concern. Everybody uh, is hugely worried that uh, other people are lying a lot online, and I think a lot of it stems from the kind of the dis disembodied nature of online communication. So when you interact with people in lots of online spaces, not now, uh, you don't get to see them, you get to see just words and that feels quite different than face-to-face um, than -face communication. People think it's easier to lie when you just have words at your disposal because you could say anything, but they, they miss all of these other features of technology that makes it difficult to lie, like recordability when you send an email or when you send a text, it's kind of there for posterity and doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to other people to do with as they wish. So um, deception is a huge concern. In a lot of our research, we find that people don't lie nearly as much as we fear online and kind of people uh, lie at similar rates as they do face to face. Sorry to cut you off. This is relevant to this. In the in the poll section, I asked, how honest are you on your dating profile? This is, hmm. uh, for those of you new to science, this is what hmm. you call a perfect study. Um, <laughs> and, I, and so 57.5% uh, of people Mm -hmm. said they are that their dating profile is 100% accurate. We're going to keep 
take them at their word. And then Ooh, um, 30% <laughs> of people said they undersell themselves. I actually just talked with a, uh, a female friend of mine about her dating, um, uh, her online dating history today to prep for the show. I've never online dated, so I needed to call some people that have actually done it. Um, and, um, and she said that she actually likes using like not her best pictures and stuff so when she shows up people are pleasantly surprised because she doesn't want to show up and yeah. see like under promise and over deliver yeah <laughs> yeah she doesn't want to see the disappointment in someone's face um 9.8 percent say they embellish a little bit and one vote for i'm straight up conning suckers <laughs> I, I mean, that there. happens at the bars too, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking yeah, of bars, were not just... <laughs> bars were not known as as truth dens. This is not a real beard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you have to not look like the Craigslist killer still to this day. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, Heather, one thing I wanted to ask you: what? First off, what age can kids get on social media? I, I was thinking online dating. Just, <laughs> no, no, just like <laughs> like Facebook and stuff. Uh, I mean, sort of like play dates. I was I was thinking it. I I hated my upbringing so much. I I had a small friend group. Uh, I should I should have been very happy. Like looking back at the friend group that I had, but. I wanted to be more popular and, but my parents wouldn't get me Jabot jeans and I needed that little thing on my, uh, the little label on my fly. So people would know that I was cool and I didn't have enough Nike swooshes and stuff. And, um, and you know, I, I just, I hated school. I, I don't think that I was a loser, but I always felt like one. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful in this day and age if you could get together, if you were a little kid and put out like an online profile to other kids and be like, hey, all the kids picked last in in kickball. Let's all get together and and play kickball together. You, you know, pickedlast.com or something like, like that. A, Where you can all get together on one long bench. You know, and virtually, find, a virtual bench. Because it was like when I was a kid, it was like, Here's what popularity means. You know, you get the big brand name thing and you're in show choir or whatever, and you like that or you're a loser. And the wonderful thing about social media or online dating, the internet in general, whatever, it, it, podcasting, is that we can have such specific interests and tailor we can create an environment and a social environment for ourselves that was unimaginable in especially compared to say like a hunter-gatherer environment right like i don't know how accurate this is but uh, for heather specifically too like the the way that we make friends is when we're younger it's just literally proximity it's like people near you physically or <laughs> yeah. like your parents friends kids and as you get a little older it, you have to sort of expand until you can actually pick friends based on common interests. And that, you know, like I didn't get that opportunity till I was probably like 20 years old, but it seems like kids now could, could have a friend group based on common interests before they even have any interests. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So as far as when kids can get on, I mean, so federal policy says 13 uh, is the age at which kids can have a Facebook account. But of course, they actually do get on much younger than that. It's pretty easy to circumvent all of those uh, age age things, just like they are for anything else. Um, and yeah, you're exactly right. And early childhood friendships are based on proximity. Uh, and increasingly, they get more about common interests and values and things like that. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of the conversations. And certainly, if any, I know a few people in the chat said that they had seen the documentary too. One of the things that I found really sort of saddeningly missing from that conversation was where the... Um, the sort of pockets of community that kids can find online. So I remember a few years ago, um, there was, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think there were some deaths by suicide related to uh, LGBTQ bullying, and there was the It Gets Better campaign. Um, and related to that, there were a lot of kids coming out saying, I found a, a community of supportive folks like me online, and there's nobody in my town who shares those values or has that lifestyle or whatever. And so I think there are opportunities there too for community building and finding safety and all of those things. So I think that's missing from a lot of the scaremongering conversations around social media. Um, and of course there's bad content out there too and harmful content, but it's just not all bad. And again, it comes back to this idea of it depends. Mm -hmm. um, as far as little kids go, I mean, five-year-olds are kind of at the oldest end of my expertise. So social media is, isn't something that tends to come up in my world. Although just within a, the last couple of years, Facebook tried some new kid-friendly Facebook light kind of thing. I forget what they called it. And parents had to approve friendships and um uh, there was a lot of parental control, but I haven't really heard much about it. So I'm not sure it really became very popular. I see. Oh, no, please, please, please go. Yeah, that's the thing with video chat that I hate. It's all the interruptions. I feel like I'm always interrupting and I hate it. Oh, um, no, please interrupt away. Thanks. Uh, so I do some research with adolescents and one of my favorite theories and ideas in research on adolescents and social media is called the social compensation hypothesis. And it's the idea that adolescents who are somewhat somehow lacking in their face to face lives because maybe they're lonely or they have social anxiety or other barriers to making friends, they can go online and overcome some of these barriers. And there's quite a bit of support on that, especially with respect to loneliness. So we're seeing that adolescents who maybe are marginalized because they belong to an LGBTQ group or another marginalized community, or maybe they're in a rural area where there's just not a lot of kids around, you know, stuff like that. Um, or maybe they have interests that are very niche. They can go online and they can find uh, similar minded people. And that's very reassuring. And similarly with social anxiety, social anxiety means that you're worried about being perceived negatively in face-to-face -face interaction. And a lot of it is tied to a nonverbal skill. You just feel awkward nonverbally. So when you get to type instead of speaking and instead of having to manage all of your nonverbals face-to-face, that's quite reassuring for a lot of people, not just adolescents. I mean, this is why I became a stand-up comedian. A as scary as it is for a lot of people to like get up in front of people and talk, I I knew growing up that I was like I had a decent sense of humor, uh, 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 and that I was like peculiar, um, and and I could get like big laughs out of people, but I was 
typically like pretty awkward. I was like one of the shyest kids uh, around. And I mean, you could ask anyone that any like my family or extended family, they thought I was a mute. They were shocked when I became a, a stand-up comedian and the ability to like curate to work on the words that you're going to say and like practice in front of a mirror it's not something i do anymore but it was it was it was something that really helped me gain confidence in my social skills um early on and i can see social media being like that in a in a way of where I, I still to this day, there's a, you know, I'm in a conversation with someone and I might not be that comfortable expressing, you know, some political point of view or maybe some interesting thing about sloths or something that I that I know and want to talk about. That can be awkward. <laughs> and I, uh, I want to. Uh, but and they're I, like, are you just going to order already? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I can like why they're called two and three toed when it's two and three fingered instead. And like, I want to talk about that, but no one else wants to. And I can get on social media and like, if I never, I never actually take the time and proofread it, but a person could think things out and then hit send. I, I, I'm a little more reckless than that, but it, it, it seems like a, uh, it could be a way of creating, um, uh, you know, almost a, I don't know, just like a safer space to, for some people to express, e even, even doing this zoom interaction, I feel more comfortable. I actually feel more comfortable on zoom talking with people than in, in person, because I have, a, I don't know if I'm like slightly autistic or so I have a hard time making eye contact with people uh, in, in person. And, and this is kind of nice for me. One of the things that comes up a lot when I talk to people on my show is that they, they always mention representation on, on television, you know, especially people who are, you know, not, not, uh, straight white guys mm -hmm. <laughs> and especially the generation we grew up in it was difficult for them to see like an lgbq person or you know african-american person and when they did on television it was huge it, it changed their lives you know especially people that grew up in middle of nowhere or they were like oh that's a thing the way i feel is a thing and it's this life-changing moment so i'm curious to see living in a world now where it's not passive. They don't have to wait for that to be presented to them. They can, to, to your point, they can actually go out and just seek those like-minded people. If that, I have to imagine that has to be more positive in development, but at the same time, it, it also kind of makes that not as a, um, not as a groundbreaking or life impact, uh, you know, my life before and after that. I, I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know what you guys think. I did ask in the poll, does social media actually make you feel connected? 5% um, of people said, yes, I don't even need a real social, uh, don't even need real social interactions anymore. 22 said, no, the more I use it, the lonelier I get. 60, the, the biggest said a bit more connected and, um, and I, these are were stupid choices that I created, but regardless, uh, eleven percent said a little less connected. So there you go, another perfect study by Shane Moss. <laughs> Thank you, Shane, for contributing. <laughs> uh, 
I, I have some data about that, and I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier. So it matters what it is that you don't like, and I'm curious if this is actually consistent with the respondents' experiences. Uh, there's a big difference between active uses and passive uses online. So if you just go online to watch Netflix or to just read uh, social media feeds, that's a passive use. You're not interacting with anybody. You're just consuming content produced by other people. And a lot of literature shows that there's bad effects associated with that. But on the other hand, active uses, even if it's just self-presenting, so posting something about yourself or adding a photograph, uh, commenting or liking what other people say, even things that are very lightweight, like a like button, um, are really beneficial and contribute to feeling uh, more connected. I wish there was a like button in the comment section in Crowdcast over here. That is one fatal flaw because I've been enjoying tons of your comments over there. And, I would uh, be thinking that. Like, I would have loved to comment because I could, you know, multitask with something. Sometimes it's hard to be like, oh, wait a second. Steve said this. I um, have a, a question for, actually for Heather about yeah. experience and or anyone else who wants to, to join in in that I, I've noticed this with, with younger people I interacted with, usually comedians who are probably not representative because they're all mentally ill. But... Um, Younger comedians wouldn't, ha they'd stop sort of hanging out after shows, but they'd go online and then they'd have like big Facebook conversations. And it hit me one day that to them, that was the same thing that experience was equal. So they, they sort of looked at that online interaction, the same as face-to-face -face interactions. And I, I don't know if you've uh, stumbled upon any research in like younger kids or when they develop where they're, they're looking at, physical real experiences in the same way they look at virtual experiences in a way that we didn't do previously. Yeah, I've wondered about this, especially in the current moment, because um, we, I mean, we were saying this a little bit earlier, too. There's so much variability across individuals in their experience of this, what we're doing right now, like talking to people through a screen. And like, for me, it was always... one question on here. It says when I when I post a comment on a live stream, my heart rate increases exponentially. <laughs> what what is causing uh, this? Whereas I, I post things. And I'm like, yep, oh, done. Don't care. Uh, anyway, so I interrupt. Oh, that's what okay. Uh, so that could be a couple of things. I've, in my experience, that's anxiety. Yeah. The anxiety over questioning, should I post this or not? How will it be perceived? Did I say that the wrong way? Um, but that's not everybody's experience, obviously. Um, and for other folks, it's the sort of that kind of dopamine jolt of the validation. That's more when you get sort of the likes and responses from people. Um, but that little kind of uh, uh, getting that pleasure center a little activated in the brain when we get a thumbs up or something on a post. Um, and so that could be a heart rate elevation moment too. Um, hmm. uh, yeah, so um, I, sorry, I lost the thread. Of what we were oh, that's all right. I was talking about experiences, like virtual experiences versus real experiences. Oh. Does their brain form differently uh, when they're introduced to those things earlier? Yeah, I, and that's something I think we still don't know very well. Um, I, in my, so this is more my experience than the the systematic research, but there are really just individual differences. Some folks treat video chat very much like they treat face-to-face -face experiences. And for others, it's painfully different. And I don't know exactly what it is that determines whether you fall in one camp or the other, whatever end of the uh, continuum that one falls on. Um, but I do think that uh, there's 
there will be what we call cohort effects, like kids these days, right? Kids who've grown up with this experience have different expectations about what socializing looks like. Um, so I've seen a lot of folks write about kids getting their driver's license later in life now, if at all, and how terrible that is. And I don't know, for me, getting my driver's license was freedom, but it was mostly freedom to hang out with friends. But I guess if you can do that in this format um, in your PJs at home, maybe they don't feel that need quite so much. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is that um, there could be kind of younger folks who've grown up with social media, for example, might look a little bit different or, or think about these things a little bit differently than folks who didn't grow up with them, that it might be a little bit more normative or not that much different from hanging out in person. And I think there's also the question of access. So one of the things I was surprised to see early on in the, um, so a lot of the big conferences in my field happened in like April around that time. So they were all canceled or moved online. And immediately I saw all of these folks saying, finally, an accessible conference. I can't go because of an accessibility issue, whether it's financial financial, physical, uh, psychological, whatever. Um, and so a lot of these folks were coming out saying for the first time, for the first time, this research conference is accessible and inclusive to folks like me. Um, so, uh, so I think about that a lot in terms of um, like some folks that prefer the virtual space for interacting. There are a whole bunch of emotional, psychological, physical barriers to socializing in person that I think some folks find easier to do online. Hmm. I also have a question regarding dating online <laughs> where, uh, uh, by the way, who's, have you, have you ever done it, Ken? No, I've been married for 16 years. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. I've never online dated uh, any, yeah. I don't want to get any uh, too personal. Has anyone here actually online dated before? I have a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Okay. Well, come on. <laughs> okay. Well, but that's research. Right. You can write that off. It wasn't for research. I mean, for research, I have talked to uh, quite a quite a few online daters, but for real, also too. So, so I wonder when I hear stuff about like people getting ghosted, which was yeah. never a thing when we were growing up. And my my sort of poorly educated theory on this is that when you have kids that grow up with say video games, which are in many ways consequence free, in that you die and you come back, or you just reboot stuff. And they, I feel like it makes them less connected to consequences and what they do and how it affects other people. Because, you know, in a video game, it's their whole world built around them and their character. So I don't know if there's any research on that or if the, the fact that the medium and the, the sort of utilization of these things has influenced the way people end things <laughs> and that it's yeah. not as important to think about. Uh, because especially, I mean, it, it often people would be set up, you know, by coworkers or family members or whatever. It'd be a fan, it'd be a family friend or 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 someone that that you're uh, that you're like someone in town knows or whatever, and and you're going to maybe have to bump into again. So you wouldn't just like not you wouldn't just ghost someone. And and then have like your sister give you a heart. Like, why did you? Now my coworkers mad at me for setting you up with the. You know, it, so is there? Uh, there? Yeah, there is research on ghosting, and it is true. I think that technology facilitates ghosting. It's one of those bad behaviors that 
is rendered a lot easier by technology. And I say it's bad because it's hurtful. Um, actually, it does, it does have negative impacts on the recipient of ghosting, especially when done in the aggregate. And I think that's the real um, sweet spot of hurt, if you will, with online dating and ghosting. If you get ghosted a lot uh, and there's a lot of opportunities for interaction, it could really affect somebody's self-esteem and, and affect and just... It just sucks. That's a really terrible thing that people do a lot these days because breakups are unpleasant. Nobody likes to have those kinds of conversation and it is easier to hide on us behind the screen. I love that there's ghosting researchers out there. There's a lot of dating researchers and so you can't really escape this. They're like paranormal researchers, but like, a lot more sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ghostbusters uh, would be a great company that you hunt down people who've ghosted you. So that to their point, and they could be like, "Oh, that guy never got back to you. Oh, we'll go find him and he'll apologize." New hey. start like it. Yeah, one thing is not good. Nobody should do it if, if at all possible. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could. I suppose I always like to qualify things. If you're dating somebody truly awful and abusive, then maybe yes. But generally, I think it's bad practice. But even back in the day, I had to fake my own death three times. It was a lot more work. <laughs> three times with the same person. Yeah, I was my own twin brother three times. <laughs> <laughs> Enough already with the faking your death. <laughs> Come up with some other excuse. Uh, I, I'm curious, Heather, in terms of development, is there anything um, is there anything actually inherently negative about screens themselves? Like, is there c compared to just getting the Dr. Seuss book out? And and reading Dr. Seuss to your kid or reading Dr. Seuss on a tablet. Is there any difference? Is that something that's been measured? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess not super directly the way you're asking it, but. Um, oh, you haven't done the specific Dr. Seuss. The Dr. Seuss, the specific Dr. Seuss study. Get yourself um, a Skinner box. <laughs> there is actually really cool developmental psych research using Dr. Seuss with like prenatal development and babies recognize the rhythm of Dr. Seuss when they're born. It's super cool. There is Dr. Seuss research out there. Um, so uh, as far as development and screens, um, not particularly in most cases. So, um, especially when you use the Dr. Seuss comparison. So I often use books as my TV comparison to say, give me like name what you're doing with the book that you're not doing with TV, especially with a baby. So you wouldn't expect a baby to get a whole lot out of a book unless there's a caregiver reading it to them. And we say the same thing about video. So I'm, I've been kind of trying to keep an eye on the chat and we'll try to slip in answers to questions <laughs> as they come up. So a couple of people asked early on about the baby Einstein question. Um, in a nutshell, no, babies don't learn from baby Einstein. So the research is pretty clear that infants have a very hard time learning from 
not people. So they learn much better in a social context. Um, and uh, that gets better. So toddlers, maybe 18, 24 months old, start to learn simple things from screens, um, but they'll still learn a lot more if they're engaging with another person. Um, but baby Einstein and the way it was constructed and the age it targeted were kind of particularly not effective. Um, we're not likely to be very useful. And, and I feel like a lot of developmental folks knew that, um, but based on how we know babies learn in the real world and the screen environment just doesn't work very well for them. Um, I know there's a lot of talk about uh, eyes, like eye development, and if screens are bad. I was, I know my folks are on this this call, um, and I was definitely one of those kids. Randy who was told says, not to. "Blue light is bad for your eyes." I've I've heard that from a You're lot. You're gonna of go people. blind if you go that close to the TV. That's I, right. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, I, I've heard I've heard people make the case that that blue lights trick you're not getting melatonin at night because it's yeah. mimicking sunlight. And so when, when television was first invented, they sold TV lamps that went on top of the television that had a specific light that back projected on the wall because they thought that you needed that to compensate for the damage it did to your eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, I, I guess I don't know if there's research on blue light and eyes specifically There, there very well could be, but you're right, Shane, there's actually really solid research on sleep disruption and blue light. And when I first heard that, I really thought it was kind of hokey new agey garbage that wasn't evidence-based. And then I looked it up. And I like that my thinking. first guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 5G gives you insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Wi-Fi and the parking meters. Yeah, unfortunately, that one's very true, and I break that all the time. My phone is the last thing I look at before I go to bed, and the first thing I look up when I wake up. And I know it's wrong, but yeah, can't help myself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so. What about this? I'm going to get into screen manufacturing. I want to sell all the screens that I can. I want to get them hooked young, and I want to keep them much like McDonald's had the play pit or whatever, so that kids would grow up into adults. I had this fondness for McDonald's, and and you get hooked on on fast food early enough. I think you get hooked on fast food regardless of play pits or not. But whatever, I want to do whatever I can. I want to get these kids hooked on screens. What do I do? Put Elmo on it. That's one thing you do. <laughs> Elmo, I'm telling you, <laughs> there's something about Elmo. Um, I Honestly, I, I would say another thing is ha have parents be on screens a lot. So I think one of the things we often don't talk about with kids and screens is whether caregivers are behaving them themselves with their own devices. So babies and young kids want to do what they see other people do in their environments. They're big imitators. Um, so if you want kids to be on screens, put their caregivers on screens. Um, all right. Well, this is a cool, uh, this is, uh, this is a good spot to, would you guys mind uh, going in the ask a question section? And I've never, usually I've steered the ship more and, and just picked the top ones or whatever. But if, if you guys wouldn't mind cycling through a little bit and finding some questions that, that resonate with you that you might have research about or things to say, um, anything like that. Um, I already answered this one. Just oh, this one's interesting about the open relationships with dating apps. I'm curious about that one. Since the conception of dating apps, this is from Kyle, I've heard read about open relationships between couples versus um, 
terminology that indicates people only feel like keeping relationships casual. Mm -hmm. These, to me, sound like we stopped valuing the long-term trust that relationship builds, similar to privacy being a thing of the past. Is trust going to be the next thing to uh, to go between individuals because of Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, Grinder? I I've you know I've I've heard a lot of people make this point of of like monogamy is going to be harder because it's it's going to you're going to be subconsciously influenced. They say this about porn or even TV or or glamour magazines or what whatever else where where in our modern world, especially compared to say hunter gatherers where you might have a, a choice of three mates if you're lucky or something like that. Um, it's like on the dating it, game? <laughs> you know, the world that we evolved in, you know, if some, if like a, if, if a new potential mate showed up, like, wow, that's a, that's a big day. Um, whereas now you can scroll through and swipe and swipe. And swipe. It, is there, ha, has there been any, I imagine there's been people mm -hmm. trying to take a whack at the research. Is there any kind of valid evidence out there for that? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question. If the first part at least is about whether um, online dating is making uh, hookups and casual relationships more popular and more salient. Um, I think the answer to that is no. Generally, I think online dating reflects more so than affects uh, current societal uh, trends. So for instance, one interesting statistic uh, is that uh, divorce rate is on the, uh, is, is dec decreasing these days and marriage rates are inc increasing. These are very small effects, uh, but they're the opposite of what we might've predicted if we had taken this uh, line of reasoning with, with, oh. with with online dating and hookups. Yeah, for sure, it's way easier to find hookup partners and also long-term relationship partners via online dating than, um, than in traditional way, but I don't think it's making us want them more. Hmm. Ma well, maybe so that's why. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why marriages are <laughs> are lasting longer, because it's easier for people to go and hook up than it used to be. Or is it also? I'm wondering. Is it? <laughs> no, is it hard, on that shame. <laughs> is it harder to lead sort of a secret life? Is it harder to hide things because there is this sort of digital trail of these things. So even though people have these apps, you're sort of forced to be more open about stuff, I guess. I love the guys with two families, the guys with a second secret family, those heroes. Well, in the 21st century, for sure. <laughs> That's like, you have a family in another state and they don't know about one It's another. like he has a control um, group and he's doing an experiment. <laughs> it's a double-blind family. I think that Ken is making a really great point here. If you're actually a, a person who wants to lie to your partner, you'll find that in many ways technology is making it harder for you than it is making it easier for you because you can be surveilled and you can be checked on much more so than if you didn't have the phone. And, you know, one really interesting study that I like to talk about is, uh, is 
the frequency of Facebook and smartphones and social media being uh, mentioned in divorce proceedings. This is how people find out that they've been cheated on or lied on because they have access to the social media. So in a way we can think about all of this technology as a, as a deterrent to deception or as a way to, uh, to catch transgressions more easily. Yeah, I, I I wronged a lady like nine years ago. I was in a relationship. Not, I mean, we, we were we were we were on our way out, and I I I cheated on her. And boy, did I uh, there there was there was some pretty impactful social costs involved with like social media stuff and whatnot that probably wouldn't have existed in an uh, area when you could just be like, I'm just going to move three states away and never see this person again. Yeah. I, and there's a phenomenon of like revenge porn and all of these terrible things that people can do with technology when they're really upset, like when they've been jolted or felt that they've been wronged in some way. You can really destroy somebody's reputation in ways that you couldn't before just because of access. This is one of the things about social media that I like to talk about, which is not the regular person has access to audiences of hundreds and thousands of people at the click of a button. And that's something that historically truly has changed. This was not possible, you know, 50 years ago, 100, 200, and so on and so forth. Yeah, we only had bathroom walls. Yeah. Uh, that's it. I'm now thinking of like it, it would be so funny to be um, uh, to be like an archaeologist or something and and find some some ancient ruins. And, and, and Socrates bites like, it. <laughs> but this is a yeah. great idea for an app. We could have a bathroom wall app that sort of background checks people on dating apps. <laughs> do I call for a good time? <laughs> One star, time not so good. <laughs> send send pigeon for a good time to <laughs> How did you and how did you and mom meet? I found this message in a bottle <laughs> on the beach. <laughs> Uh, that's a, oh, people don't do messages in bottles anymore. I feel well. Like. You're hanging around with the wrong people. <laughs> Some pretty hot stuff going on um, in the message uh, in bottle community. Uh, any, anyone else find see a question that they liked that they wanted to answer? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think the 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 couple of the top ones are about how research has changed in the era of COVID, and I think. Catalina and I probably both have a lot of things that we're thinking about in that world. Um, so I'll take the first one about about kids. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of interest in research on kids and screens right now. That's probably not a surprise. Um, there's definitely an uptick in research on young kids learning in virtual space, since most kids are doing remote learning. Um, so there's a lot of research there. And the other place where I've seen a lot of research, um, thankfully, is on parents and parent well-being. Like, are the parents okay? And um, 
what are they experiencing right now? And especially in my my world of research on kids and screens. Um, uh, in fact, one of my um, collaborators in my department, Maggie Kerr, just did a parent survey. And one of the things we asked parents about is how they might be using screen media to help them cope. So um, in what ways has screen media been a positive, have a positive, positive role in your life coping during COVID? Um, and whether that's actually the best and healthiest way to cope with those problems is not what we're trying to determine, but the fact that parents are doing it. So the majority of parents said they use media to help them escape from negative feelings. They use screen media to get a break from parenting. Um, and so my, my soapbox moment with this research is always, uh, we shouldn't be shaming parents to get rid of screens. They need to actually address the problems that they're facing that have them turned to screens in the first place. So if they're lacking connection, if they're isolated, if they're depressed, we need to address those problems instead of just taking away the coping mechanism that they've been able to have during this moment. So I think there's been uh, a lot of research focusing on that. Like, I'm really glad to see more people focusing on how and why screens are being used with kids rather than just how much as difficult as as all of this situation is, I mean, to think back at, uh, I I mean, there certainly there was a time when when people didn't understand contagion that much or whatever. I mean, they're always uh, e even even hunter gatherers would think like if someone got sick or there was a thing going around, they're like. Oh, oh, Steve wasn't sharing enough, and so like the water demon must have got to him, or or whatever. That's not that's an actual real uh, thing. I talked with some researchers recently. That's not just me making up weird stories. Those are like you know people would think of stories to justify these things. Well, you have um, done a lot of hallucinogenics, Shane. I I have as well, um, <laughs> and uh, and seen water monsters. the The point that I'm trying to make is that. Uh, I was talking with my grandpa recently uh, uh, during, uh, and he was around during polio and he was like, yeah, we all had to, we all like quarantined out, out, out at the farm, didn't interact, didn't go to school. Uh, and that we can still interact with people, call whoever we want, see people get on with much of our lives. Some people's, I mean, stand-up comedians are especially screwed, no doubt about it. But there's so many people, like my brother, who does um, a lot of uh, a lot of computer programming stuff, should have been working remotely 10, 20 years ago, and this has been the catalyst for exceptionally positive change. Their productivity at his company has increased. I've had like. Uh, I, I, I've, I've caught up with, I've done the cliche thing of like catching up with every, uh, every person I've ever met in life in COVID. I've had all of these, um, uh, terrific, like, uh, uh, friendships with, with females that I, that I haven't gotten to have in the past because I was in relationships or whatever else. Whereas it used to be before all of this, if there was a, if there was some pandemic going around, that's good call. If, if there was some pandemic going around, you would have been, you would have been screwed by the way, uh, just for the listener, just because that was hilarious. I told them to let me know when I was getting too long winded and Ken has a, Ken has a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> using when I'm getting too long <laughs> and he put the pipe in and he's correct so 
all, all that is all that is to say is that there's these incredible things that that would have never nothing like this existed even a hundred years ago. Thoughts, yeah. questions, concerns. It's, I mean, it's frustrating to be sitting at a desk for what feels like twenty four seven for sure. Yeah. But I wouldn't trade this for for a time of no computers. That would be awful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's dangers of you know overuse and a lot of other problems that I suppose we could talk about. But at the end of the day, we can do our jobs and we can be connected. And especially for people who who live alone or who don't have a built-in social network, if you didn't have these technologies, it'd be a pretty terribly long, lonely time for, especially since we're looking at such an extended period of time with no end in sight, actually. We don't know. It's months, years, who knows? Do you find that without a separation between work or school or these environments where, um, you know, we, we can escape, like, how would I word this? Growing up my home, even as bad as it could be, was sort of a, a, a cocoon. It was a comfort. It was, it was a home base. I could, you know, if school was terrible, when I got home, I was safe, you know, and I could get rid of it. Or if you hate your job, you get home and it's safe. But now with, with virtual things, there's no difference in a lot of ways. And that thing that may be causing you anxiety or that you want to get away from from is being pumped into your safe space. And I don't know if, if it's too early to have any research on that, but is that affecting the way people um, look at their, their home environment? I think that's a, a, a good possibility. I think it depends. Again, there's some people who have worked from home for many years and enjoyed it and don't see that as a problem. Then there's other people like me who are in your camp. I need to have some sort of separation. I used to love going to the office. I miss my office dearly. Uh, it feels like I'm incredibly bored being at home, just being online all of the time. Like I take more showers these days because I'm that bored, right? I need a diversity of interactions, especially when the weather is bad. So I'll be looking at an interesting winter ahead. Um, uh, yeah, so for some people, this might be a psychological problem where everything is cocooned into one thing, the good and the bad, and there's no escape. You're, I've, I'm, I'm, I've, I haven't been bored one single mm. moment of all of, <laughs> I, I could, I could use, I've been hoping for just a little bit of boredom once. Not it hasn't. It oh hasn't no, happened. my shower time has yeah exponentially <laughs> grown. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, there's no rush. You're like half hour, sure. Um, <laughs> differences. I told you different strokes for different folks. Mm -hmm. Um, I this was where was this question? This was oh shoot. Oh, and there's Here nothing in the pipe, by the way. People ask me. I've never done a drug or alcohol in my life. It's it, it's just an affectation, the pipe, so I can go for my full 50s dad look. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm curious about, uh, do, you, do you guys do much with algorithms? And uh, are, are they, I'm also curious if they're impacting children. So I was never on Instagram 
um, until COVID. And I've been, I've actually enjoyed interacting on it more than I ever thought I would. I just don't like social media generally. And have, I took like a two and a half year break from it before this since getting on, here's what's happened in the short amount of time. My Instagram went from like animals and skateboards. And then it just like, uh, extreme, you know, like Tony Hawk and like stuff like that and, and new technologies. And then it's just gotten a little more embarrassing over time. <laughs> like if I go to my home thing, it's like, I'm always, I'm very proud of myself. I, I feel like I don't fall for like boob trickery as much as I didn't think of myself as someone that would get thirst trapped as much as the average uh, social media consumer, but I've gotten stuck in those in thirst traps. I, and, I, and another thing that happens is I'll find people that I don't like. I'll, I, I'll, I'll be recommended like, um, here's this red pill like guy that's like this person will say anything and he's you can't <laughs> handle it you can't handle it things are too politically correct now and i'll say ethnic things <laughs> or whatever and and because i've clicked on some of them just being like what's this idiot talking about now and now and so because of the algorithms it's just like oh i guess he likes clicking on Mm -hmm. <laughs> on that thing what are what are your thoughts on the way algorithms are providing all of these feedback loops that was a big i think that's the big concerning thing that that the documentary social dilemma was talking about yeah for sure yeah that was one of the main themes and i think that's also one of the things one of the points in there that i did kind of agree with um in terms of things being new now, that's one of the things that's really new now. So a lot of these, the current technology is just the latest variant on the same old problems and solutions that we've had recurring over the centuries, as we were talking about before. But I think the, um, the ability for kind of smart, adaptive, um, give you more of what you clicked on or more of what's, I think the, the way that they describe it in the docu in that documentary is particularly poignant i think they say that it's about the the attention economy so the goal is to keep your eyeballs on it as long as possible so whatever it is that gets your eyeballs to stay on it longer that's what it wants um mm -hmm. and that kind of smart um adaptive individualized algorithm is very new that like catalina said the ability to reach thousands of people at the click of a button has never been seen before that kind of smart adaptive individualized um stream of content is new and never been seen before. And I've often seen um, social media in particular characterized as like kerosene. So if you, you know, mental health challenges in adolescence always been a problem, especially in the last 50 years or so, but social media might be kerosene on that fire. It just sort of puts a, just kind of exacerbates everything. And I think this kind of individualized adaptive nature of social media is one of those things. So I, I, I'm not sure that's going away ever. It can result in, uh, you know, someone in the chat put in like kind of the feedback loops that can get you more and more extreme content. All of those things are kind of inherent in the adaptive um, AI-driven algorithms that are built into social media. And I'm not sure if there's an easy solution to that because it's kind of baked into the financial model that supports them. Do you feel like that 
um, especially for kids as they develop, does that rob them of shared experiences? So like one of the things that when people are like, television's terrible, I'm like, yeah, but people who are roughly my age, even if we're totally different and nothing in common, we can discuss a TV show we both watched. And because everybody watched it, you really didn't have a choice. But with this very niche algorithm driven stuff, it almost socially engineers you to have a common experience with people who've also gotten that algorithm. And so I, are we missing that common shared experience? Is that what makes people feel alienated? I, I asked a friend, you know, what is our common experience now? And she was like, natural disasters. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I mean, that, like, that's what it's sort of come to is that I don't know if there's been research about that or what your thoughts are on that. I also am worried about the trend of like something new drops on Netflix and now you better, you better burn through it. You better binge it that day. You better watch the entire season because everyone's talking about it in the water. And this is the shared experience that we're all going to have. And we all must have watched eight hours to be in, involved in the conversation. So to Ken's point, I, I think we've seen this kind of market segmentation for a very long time with television as well. We have more and more channels and more and more specialized channels and specialized programming. So that's been happening before algorithms and algorithms are likely contributing to it. I think we still have shared experiences quite a bit in terms of, uh, you know, popular shows that everybody has watched and, and can talk about. Um, there's some interesting research around filter bubbles and echo chambers that perhaps you've heard about. This is something that people care about in the realm of politics, very relevant these days. So it's a question of, you know, are these algorithms giving us exactly the information that we want to see and they don't expose us to any different points of view, which could actually be a really terrible thing for democracy. And I think lots of people think the answer to that question is yes. Scientifically, it's a difficult question to uh, investigate. There's been some studies, and I guess I'm happy to report that they haven't found strong evidence of filter bubbles mm. and echo chambers. So we are still getting exposed to a variety of things. I've seen you know, people have mentioned in the comment section echo chambers over and over again. It's a it's a popular topic. It's, it's something that you hear quite a bit about. I also ironically, have, <laughs> I, I, I tend to hang out with people that that talk about echo chambers quite a bit and never hear the other side of it. Um, but I also felt pretty alienated growing up without the internet raised in like i was raised catholic it never made sense to me no offense to religious folks or whatever but i didn't i didn't and i didn't know that there was people that weren't religious i didn't know that that was a thing you could be so i thought i was a crazy person i didn't have any like like-minded people so I mean, that was an but echo chamber. To me, know? that like deepened my interests, though. Like the fact that I, you know, had to flip through cable and watch Night Flight or listen to college radio and hear certain music and get exposed that way. Like I felt like I earned it in a way that it, it sort of meant more to me or I held on to it or I, um, I sort of absorbed it more to like what one of the questions we that Shane brought up at the very beginning is, you know, with this instant access to information and to entertainment or, or, or people or cars, do we not 
um, sort of value those things when we get them? And do we not hold on to them? So uh, an example I have is, and Shane knows the comic this is, but I won't out him. I was doing a show with a comic once, and he kept putting the the address of the show into his GPS. And I was like, I know how to get there. Don't put it in. I know how to get there. And he literally sincerely asked me, how do you know how to get places? And I was like, <laughs> I, I go there once and then I remember, you know, but it was true. It was kind of like, well, why would I remember? Cause I have this thing here. So it's like, why would I hang on to this music? That means so much to me um, when I can just listen to anything. And I don't, you know, whenever, or, or any of these experiences, which become, um, easier to access and um sort of less deep that was dan bulger wasn't it it wasn't shockingly no oh damn okay good uh, guess though <laughs> um do you have comments about that no to be honest i'm still on this concept of the echo chamber and thinking yeah. through some of the research on that <laughs> to be honest uh i guess i'm stuck in a feedback loop of my own over here thinking about the concept of feedback loops um, no worries yeah I, and i'm also really yeah. trying to multitask and read the chat on the side to try to give to yeah yeah this, this is, we, I, we should almost talk about multitasking and how people yeah. I, I mean, I, I do think that people, won't people get better at multitasking and things with, like if I did a crowdcast every single week, wouldn't I eventually get better at multitasking and finding the balance of, but then. But would you get happened, worse at, would you get worse at focusing on one thing? Maybe, or would I, even if I did get better, would I over and then overestimate my ability to multitask and then I'd be just as bad at it anyway? I don't know. Uh, I think I should leave that to Heather because she's our cognitive scientist, but my answer is no, you don't get better. Multitasking is terrible. We have very limited attention. So reading all of the side comments, which is I'm doing constantly because they keep mm -hmm. popping up and listening to you doesn't work very well. <laughs> yeah, and that I mean the brain just doesn't the human brain just doesn't work that way. It's just we just yeah. can't and well, we're not Why not? I know it would just it would make my job a lot easier. I have Aren't to there say some kind of fancy it's... helmets we can use or maybe <laughs> some kind of pills. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the the worst part of it for, for me in terms of productivity is is there's a switching cost too. So if you try to multitask, not only do you not do it well, but you're actually less efficient because there's kind of a lag to kind of switch every time you switch back and forth. So when Shane says, what do you guys think? And I'm like, oh, shoot, I was just reading the chat and it's going to take me a minute even to form a coherent thought to respond to that question. Um, there's just I'm a switching the cost. One. No, yeah. you're you're not. You're not. It's we can't do it. It's not a thing. Regarding the uh, regarding algorithms, you know, there there's all of these things like say Fitbit or there's like apps to allow you to um you know, shut lock your phone at certain times. There there's all these ways of using technology to protect you from technology or to build better habits. Uh, right now, there's all these algorithms that are like, well, we see you're going to look at butts for a little longer than even though you might consciously want to learn science things. Uh, so we're going to show more butts. Gotcha. Uh, well, uh, maybe, do you think that one day we'll be able to uh, 
put settings in our computer and be like, this is what I consciously want. So uh, much in the way that you might, um, what's the concept? Environmental engineering, where like, I want to eat less less, uh, candy bars. So I'm going to put the candy bars in the top shelf of my cupboard so they're not right out so I'm not passing by them all of the time. So you want to hide to make them harder. To, yeah, I, so I can still and go and have a candy bar when I really want it, but it will take me extra effort and therefore I won't be eating as many of them. Are are there I I imagine there are already. Do you have hope for um more things like that developing? Yeah, for sure. I I think this is one of the things that I found particularly frustrating about the Social Dilemma documentary because there were so many, there was so much modeling of bad habits, just bad practices. So Mm -hmm. um, for those of you who haven't seen the documentary, there's a particular scene that they sort of reenact a family at the dinner table and the one parent figure says, we're not doing phones at the dinner table tonight. Everyone turn your phones in. And then mom puts them in a clear plastic container on the counter right next to the table. So they can see all the, (laughs) why would you do this? If you truly wanted to avoid the distractions, just turn off your notifications or put them in a different room. What Um, you need to do is you need to take a stick and put it out and then you tie the phone to the stick in front of you. So the kid. That's right. Or you hit them with (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I think you're right. Sort of um, shaping our the device itself and our environment. So turning off notifications, or there are tools on most phones. I think built into the OSs. We just often don't know they're there to like turn off notifications. So I don't get notifications between certain hours overnight unless it's a phone call from my kid. That's like the one thing that's allowed to come through. Um, so you can set up all of these. It just takes. A, the knowledge to know that those things are out there and, and be the time and energy to actually set them up. So I think we can engineer the device itself to make it better. And then the environment too. So in the same scene in the documentary, they say no phones and then they all sit and stare at each other. And I thought, okay, parents, this is your opportunity to engage your kids in conversation and that might help them avoid the phone. But instead we're all just staring at each other awkwardly. Um, so I think uh, for me, a lot of it's about what uh, what purpose is that device serving for you? And how do we meet that need in a different way? So if the need is human connection, then just saying, turn your phones off and then stare at each other blankly, that is not replacing that need for human connection, for example. So we think about what need that's serving and how we can better serve it with a different, a different tool, then that's going to be a lot more helpful. I remember about five years ago, I had this wonderful day of going to do a podcast. I show up at the the Stanford campus, which is just absolutely lovely. I go interview a guy, I'm forgetting his name. He tells me all about this thing he's constructed called apply um, magic sauce. Uh, com. You go in there, you give it access to your Facebook, bing, bang, boom. It will tell you uh, what what percent what chance you are that you're this religion what gender it thinks you are what your personality profile is all these neat things i'm like wow neato technology and i go on with my day skip forward like 
two years later, <laughs> it's like, oh, Cambridge Analytics has used this technology to put a wannabe dictator in charge of our country. Whoops. And, and uh, as we, as I, I, I've interviewed all these great, like say marketing people that do this amazing research that's like, here's a great way to break this bad habit so you don't make unnecessary purchases. The thing is, no one knows about that research other than me, my listeners, and the 300 people that maybe read their paper, but one of those 300 people that read their paper is the people working for a marketing company that wants reverse to reverse engineer, engineer yeah. everything to be like, now how do we get people to spend uh, irresponsibly? What do we do about that? You're correct. <laughs> what do we do about it? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, once again, this is that same old theme of this is not a new problem. It's just a, a bigger, better version of more, more uh, tech enabled version. So I guess to the extent we want to call it a problem that psychology grad students have gone on to take jobs in marketing departments for decades. And it's one of the one of the lucrative job opportunities for a psychology grad student because being able to predict human behavior is really lucrative if you're working for the right person. Um, and so I think this is just a newer, techier version of that exact same practice. Um, what do we do about it? Uh, and still morality <laughs> in grad students. That's what we need to do. <laughs> I mean, over time, I have learned to when I see like a sciencey sounding headline, I have to stop and go, wait a second. Is this like this thing that says like, so I, I hated when surges had the rally. I thought, I thought it was the most ridiculous. I, I mean, I hated it so much. I wrote like 30 minutes of material about it. I wanted to hate it even more. And, and then I saw some like scientific, ish paper that was like Sturges has led to a quarter of a million new COVID pieces and $12 billion. And, and I, my instant thing was like, Ooh, I want to post this because I'm mad at these people or whatever. And I had to stop myself and go, let's take a look at this. This, the, the numbers didn't quite, that sounded a little too good to be true. How are they tracking that? I, I read through it. I'm like, Hmm. This seems a little shaky. I don't think I'm going to share this uh, publication. I'm someone that right now has like, a, you know, I'm used to talking with scientists and I have the time on my hands to do stuff like that. Do you think it's just a matter of people starting to get more used to uh, just just increasing science literacy? But and, I, do you do you think people want to share an article like that so that they can go, Hey, I'm getting the word out about this. Or do they want to share an article like that to go, Hey, I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of spreading Both. the actual content, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah, think media literacy is really important these days, especially in the age of misinformation. So kudos to you, Shane, for not sharing something that you weren't, uh, sure about in terms of credibility. Uh, and I think Ken is correct. People use social media for validation to a, a, a huge extent. 
and for feeling part of an in-group, for feeling like other people agree with you and approve of you. And there's a lot of social validation that happens on social media. So that's a huge reason for checking. And I also think that people know their audiences. People are kind of savvy. So, you know, Heather and I will probably think very deeply before sharing a, a scientific article on social media because we're friends with a lot of professors. So if it's a crappy article, then we're going to hear about it and we don't want to do this. And similarly, I think Shane knows that he's probably connected with a lot of scientists who are going to judge what he's posting. Uh, so people are thoughtful in those ways and tend to target their behaviors to whoever they think is part of the audience. Yeah, in the past, if we wanted to find a group, we would have had to latch on to a media-created vision based on World War II soldiers with PTSD <laughs> about how motorcycles are an individualistic view of humanity. <laughs> uh, that's from 40 years ago. I mean, you know, it's the same thing. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, yeah, I, I go back and forth with this because I, I when I started this, I was like, uh, I was like, I bet I'll be the anti-TV person, and Ken will be the pro-TV person, or something, and there'll be some mix. And I don't know where I fall, and and I still have no idea where where Ken fall. I think this is all just so. Um, fluid. We know I don't like bikers. We can establish that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't like the idea of going to see Smash Mouth during a global pandemic. For you didn't sure. even have to say during uh, a global pandemic. <laughs> you actually didn't have to say going to see. You could have just said, I don't like the idea of like Smash the Mouth. <laughs> even in concept, I don't I have like been using mouth. weight. You should have put the pipe in for that, <laughs> for that sentence. <laughs> well... <laughs> I don't I like don't, don't like the concept of Smash Mouth. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Shane, somebody once told me the world <laughs> is gonna roll me. <laughs> uh, I, I, I do think that uh, that's you know someone's saying smart friends are are great editors too. I I think that that's another thing that that social media can. Uh, <sighs> allow you to i think a lot of people like i i know some people that are like naturally smart but their problem is they're the smartest person that they know yeah you know they're they're they're, they're the smartest person they go to work they're the smartest person in their workplace because they, they want to keep it, it that way <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> and and in their in their family or whatever in their friend group they're the smartest person so they don't ever have to it, it's it would be nice to live in a world where there was social pressure uh, to be a little more scientific minded. I don't even think it's necessarily a political thing. I was just reading something recently that was like 80% of people think that we should, that, that we need to label food that contains DNA. <laughs> like if food contains DNA, <laughs> the foundation of life. Well, what if there's Adam? We, 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 <laughs> we should put labels on it, and I it might be carbon based. You want to know about that? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't exactly know where I was going. I I don't I don't know if there's a good solution to any of this. Well, I, I think what I would 
what I would ask is, is there a value in being forced to interact with people you don't, you didn't choose to interact with? So the technology we're using allows us to edit people out in a much easier way. But sometimes when you have to interact with certain people, it forces you to adapt and to at least consider what you're saying, what you're doing, or how you're doing it. And if you can avoid that, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. It might feel good. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, I, I think... Sorry, Shane, yeah. go ahead. No, you. Uh, I was just going to say, I think um, what I'm thinking more about with like the um, sort of what we were talking about echo chambers and not being exposed to ideas different from yours. I think the bigger risk with the way, so like say, for example, the YouTube algorithms work is that they, they're the, they're reward, the algorithms themselves are rewarded by pushing you to more extreme content, which is content you're more likely to continue watching. So if I watch something that's, let's say the social dilemma um, uh, documentary, and they say, oh, okay, Heather might be more like, might be likely to watch another documentary that's kind of science, social science-y, but she's probably really likely to watch this thing that's like anti-social media. And so if you keep following that chain, you get exposed to more and more extreme content. And the next time you enter that social media space, it's likely to show you similar things, I'm sure. And that's where the echo chamber thing could happen, although it sounds like the research says that's not necessarily a thing. Um, but I think it's the exposure to extreme ideas that is particularly more likely now, given the way the algorithms work, just because of how they're built and what they're what rewards them, like what, what gets them to keep showing content. Um, that said, yes, can I absolutely think it's healthy um, for all of us to be exposed to folks who are different from us, for, to folks who think differently from us. And this is where um, I remember talking to our former provost at the University of Wisconsin once about um, the voting statistics on campus and that um, our, our first year students tend to come with whatever kind of political views they were raised with, whatever their family's views are. And over their time here, they tend to blend a lot more and become a little bit less predictable based on where they came from, not because um, we terrible professors are brainwashing them, but I wish that were true. I don't think it is. But rather, they're exposed to folks who think differently from the kind of pod that they were exposed to. And I think a, probably a lot of people out here were like me and grew up in smaller towns and then went to a college campus that exposed them to people they might never have encountered before. Um, and that I think can only ever be a good thing to be exposed to ideas and ways of thinking and um, uh, historical perspectives that are different from your own um, to the extent that social media can help us do that. That's, that's great too. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I do think it's interesting if I can like go and look at some of the echo chambers that I've seen, like use it, log into Instagram, go to like the home thing, see what it's showing me and be like, is this who I am? Is, <laughs> is this who I've been for the last week? <laughs> and, and because I do now I, when it, when it gives me a bunch of stuff that I'm like, wait a second, I don't want to be that guy. I, I will intentionally spend a little extra effort clicking on the things that I want more of populated in my feed. As we start wrapping up, I, I want to, one, 
thank uh, the Wisconsin Science Fest for uh, uh, for doing uh, uh, putting on such an awesome event, for having me, for doing all sorts of things for things for all ages, and and uh, hopefully next year getting to do lots more uh, live events. Go science, and uh, also. Pro Mega guys, if you're a sciency-ish person needing sciency things, I think they might have stuff. Pro Mega, um, <laughs> I, that's, that's, um, uh, as as we're wrapping up, could I have could I have each of you say maybe um, one one or two of your like biggest most important takeaways that you wish from your research you wish everyone in the world um knew about some like i'll I'll let you decide but some simple little thing that people could implement in their lives or or be more mindful of or whatever you want to go first catalina Sure. I will say that technologies appear simple, but they're actually really complicated. And I hope everybody takes a media literacy class because it's important to understand kind of those nuanced effects. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, can I give a trifecta? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, we have the phrase a lot, Lisa Guernsey, an author, um, uh, and journalists come up, sort of coin the phrase, the three C's when we talk about kids and media. So the three C's are content, context, and child. So when we think about media effects, and I said, it depends, we think about the content, what they're watching or what game they're playing matters enormously. The context, are they doing it together with another person in a social context, or is it kind of uh, making them more isolated? Um, and then the third C is the child. So some kids respond differently than other kids to different types of media content. So all of those things sort of dictate what the impact of media is on kids. And I think it's super important to emphasize that there are no invariable effects in, in media and tech research. Um, Ken, any... Uh I am not a well-educated person. Uh, I, I don't have a lot to add uh, other than listen to the smart people like we just did. And uh, yeah. How about plug some stuff? Um, I'm still TV in my home. Is. Yep. I haven't left my house since March. Uh, I've somehow stayed relatively sane. TV guidance counselor is out every week. Uh, next week we have Jello Biafra from the dead Kennedys as my guest. Uh, you can go to tvguidancecounselor.com or anywhere where podcasts are found. Is it, is it still the same structure as when I did it? So it is for the listener. It's, it's really awesome. So, so Ken has every TV guide that's, that was ever created. He has a bunch of them in his house. I, I don't know why they're not all behind him right now, but also awesome background regardless. And he gives, uh, he gives a guest a TV guide. They go through and pick like a couple shows from each every day night. Something. Yeah. Now I scan them and I send them a PDF and so <laughs> they go through virtually, but we discuss it that way. Um, and uh, yeah, it still works. So yeah, uh, this week I have Lois Bromfield who was a comedian uh, wrote for Roseanne, a bunch of stuff, but yeah, so it's, it's fun. And it's, so it's, it's a lot of, do you, how many conversations have you had about MacGyver at this point? 
Oh, if I About? had to guess, I'd say 27. 27 uh, <laughs> MacGyver is it is come up as much as it should, but it does come up a lot. I mean, I've done 500 episodes. I've had a ridiculous amount of guests on, so it's probably in the low 10,000s. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you, Catalina. Uh, uh, so so much actually do you want to is there any way you could put your the links to your sites in i think it's in the description too listeners by the way because this is free you can share this it's available afterwards you can share it with anyone that you think would be interested thank you all for um participating and being such wonderful people thank you heather as well uh, heather kakorian as well for being here and i never know how to end things so i think just i'm just ghost going to just ghost us <laughs> <laughs> thanks everybody yeah thank, thank you, you so much everybody you guys are really awesome all right guys thank you for watching and if you just want to hear me riff a little bit about what my thoughts are uh one Quality wise, you know, there there's things that I can do in terms of I can always put a little more research in ahead of time. I could always like spend a little time like kind of writing some jokes to put in. Usually how I typically do things like this is just brainstorm a little bit, have things on my mind. I don't really write jokes and have stuff ready to go. But I, I could experiment with that um, a little bit too. It's uh, It takes a lot of time to do that that might seem like forced and crowbarred in in such a like authentic conversation like this where my my usual approach is just to be reading a lot of related things, maybe have some conversations with friends. Uh, ahead of time about the subject matter, maybe put uh, put things out on Instagram uh, or Patreon or whatever, social media, asking you guys questions um, that you might have for, for guests. Um, and then just kind of drawing on this experience that I built. And I think this was, I thought, I thought this was funny. You know, I, I don't, I don't often... I'm so wrapped up in the big ideas that I don't really care uh, in terms of the podcast if I'm like getting laughs or not so much. Like that's just a that's always just been a bonus for me, and I even say that in the emails when I email guests because I don't want I don't want to put any pressure on them to try to be funny. I just happen to be a comedian who happens to be interested in this stuff. Certainly, I think these uh, I think these conversations are, are fun without having to be like, brunch. um, but this one, uh, you know, having my friend Ken, uh, he's, he's super funny and I already knew he is well suited for this. So what, you know, is, is that, is that the right balance? I, there was times when, you know, finding the balance of making sure everyone gets equal airtime. There was a few times when I, I, I asked some such long-winded questions. <laughs> I beat myself up for afterwards, um, but that's just kind of my style. I don't like just 
asking questions. I also like explaining where the question is coming from and and like sharing what my biases are, or personal story or or whatever. So it's a more full question to be uh, addressed. And then the main thing was just the attention. So the thing is, is I'm not that worried about the attention span of keeping up with what people are writing because I could adapt to that over time. But if I have new guests on that aren't used to that, that's the consideration. So if I was even to do keep doing these or keep doing uh, Twitch or, or whatever, I, I'm almost inclined to have them not even be able to see the comments, you know, I, I can stream it through a Zoom and stream, so only I'm seeing the comments and, and, um, and I'm like giving feedback and, and letting, letting the guests know what they're saying and piping in with questions from people because, you know, I think it was, uh, I think it was a little bit challenging, um, for everyone in this one to keep the uh, uh to keep switching attention which we even mentioned um with within it so that's a consideration like how much would that perhaps negatively impact um uh, attention or and therefore the quality of the show um and then marketing this was free i got to have sponsors for it i mean that's a no-brainer if i can just like get a bunch of sponsors all the time to pay me pay my budget pay for marketing and stuff that's awesome i still even making it a free show it didn't seem to have in fact i i feel like having it be paid makes people put a little skin in the game, makes people a little more active, makes sure people actually attend and not just sign up, which, um, you know, isn't, uh, none of that's like a huge deal. Like, you know, I get paid or, you know, whatever, whatever one way or another, if people are signing up, but I certainly, one, I want, I want to, I want my, I want it to be worth my academics time, you know, and not just have, we've had good turnout so far, but would it be worth someone's time if we have a flop and only like 30 people show up or something like that? I wouldn't mind that, but I don't want to be taking away from my, um, my academics busy schedule and I don't want to be letting them down and I want them to be excited and have, have done something and recommend it to other academics. And, and I want to be growing my fan base. I want, I want new science enthusiasts discovering what I'm doing. And I, I want, uh, I, I want the people that do show up to have a bunch of people to interact with and, you know, the more the merrier kind of situation. So there's all these, marketing considerations so i was like well you know it's election season everyone's so distracted and so wrapped up in politics for you know good reason right now and and how easily is it going to be to market these sorts of things every every comedian is out there throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall and trying to do a zillion virtual shows and and um you know i think what i'm doing is is pretty unique and also genuine 
to just me and what I what I do generally. And I, I think it's also, you know, like I said, trying to do things that are a good fit that aren't just um, compromised, like, well, it sure would be nice to go and see a regular stand-up comedy show, but we can't, so I guess we'll see a virtual stand-up comedy show. That's not the kind of stuff I'm interested in. What I liked about this event is this is something that all of the time there's like, I could do this and there's advantages to, you know, if I was doing, say, a live stand-up science show, we do a Q&A at the end. Yeah, it's a different pros and cons. There's there's more of that energy in the room and and, you know, live is the best experience. But for people to be able to join in from wherever they want, to have it recorded, to be able to play later, to share with people, to being able to comment all throughout. You know, if you were at a live comedy show or stand-up science show or, or science talk or whatever, you wouldn't just be able to be chatting with the, with the person next to you. It'd be distracting to the speaker and the people around you. And so it's cool that people get to chat actively during it and and comment on things and um so you know i'm just thinking of a lot of things like that with with doing this so maybe you guys have seen some things that that are good ideas that other people have been doing that that uh maybe i should try like i might try twitch there's some other services i'm thinking of exploring um, or there was just things you liked or, or didn't like um, about this that could be uh, emphasized or improved upon. And I would absolutely love your feedback. I love doing this. I, I mean, I would absolutely, if there was the demand, if I could easily just like, you know, put a some stuff out on Twitter or Instagram or whatever without having to pay for ads, without having to send out like a, uh, you know, a mass email each time or, or whatever. And I was able to regularly build this up and do this like once a week or something like that. That would be amazing to me. Or, or even if there were ways of incorporating some of this stuff into some of my, uh, here we are recordings which I've thought about streaming through Twitch while they're happening. So maybe people can comment. I'm worried about the attention thing. Um, uh, but it could be maybe if I, maybe if I had like a, a moderator, you know, a third person kind of as, as the comments are coming in, maybe copy and paste and highlight the, the, good comments and questions and and be like a, a filter like they kind of uh that's what they do in like radio shows or whatever were kind of a filter process so i only see the um uh, you, you know the best ones the the selected ones um how that works is another possibility you know I, a lot of these are like problem solved if you have a big enough <laughs> fan base or or enough of a budget so um you know any any of you that keep spreading the word about the here we are podcast or support me on on patreon or anything like that you're you're adding toward a uh 
brighter future of more possibilities and improved quality and more uh, time to make more content and so on. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to share some thoughts. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad that uh, a, a lot of you guys like hearing kind of some of the behind the scenes uh, stuff. I always, I always, I still get so, I, I still get self-conscious talking into a microphone to my, uh, to myself. I, I like sharing these thoughts and I, I love overthinking everything and sharing my thought process, uh, with people and putting together these puzzles and involving other people, uh, in it just cause I, I think it's interesting and, and, if you're the certain personality, you're going to be interested in it as well. Um, and so, yeah, so that's why those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites because we're just on a different, uh, we're, we're on a different wavelength. You know, you like, uh, you like hearing the behind the scenes stuff and, and probably thinking about these things for yourself. And there's probably aspects of, of some of this that, uh, apply to a lot of your own life or maybe business stuff that you have or, um, Yeah just your enjoyment of how you take in entertainment and and maybe it adds to the appreciation of what goes on behind the scenes um for lots of what comics have to do and or um science podcasts or you know different shows so hope you enjoyed it you guys are awesome see you next week